Alrighty. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom I have brought out of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on the ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments, from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to, take the tent, used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, so that I, know in, so that I may know in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will be show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one see throughout all the mountain. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks of or herds graze opposite the mountain. 
So Moses, Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. The mission of the church. I am on now. Um, Not sure if I should walk forward or backwards. So it wasn't my fault. I can press a button. That that makes me feel much better. Um, So anyway, uh, so the mission, uh, the mission of the church universal is, we all know what it is, right? We, We say it every single Sunday together, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Um, but but the, the elders have gone through um, a season where we have thought about the mission of the church universal, the global church, the church all over the world, and, and we've thought about how that mission is going to apply to us, to us all, us gathered body of believers uh, in our particular context with this specific group of Christians. The elders have sought to communicate the mission of the church universal that Jesus gave, the Great Commission, uh, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, in the following way. So this is what our mission is. Um, our, Our Lord Jesus Christ commissions us to glorify the Father by making disciples as we go into the world, gather into the church, and teach the church to obey his commands by the Spirit of God. So in the coming weeks... Uh, The elders will work to explain how the vision um, embodies in our particular context with this specific group of Christians, the teaching of the scriptures and demonstrate to us all the various ways that the vision will aim to accomplish that mission. If if you need, uh, we have some on the little table where papers are available. We have some versions of the unnoted, so the short version of our mission and vision. Uh, So you can go grab those. Uh, after the service. And, and what, I, what we hope, the elders, what we hope will happen, that we all as a collective body, um, that we'll try to dream together about our future, what, what our future might hold for us as a specific group of Christians in this particular context. This season will be, as we examine God's word together, an exercise in collective dreaming. Right? What does God want for us so come prepared each Sunday to examine, examine God's word and to dream, right? Dream together. But before we get into the content of our desires for our future, this morning and next week, we'll kick things off by exploring one of the most foundational elements of our faith. This is the bedrock of all that we do, and that is the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's from Titus 2.13. And the way that this glory and our relationship to his glory shapes us 
even at the level of our deep desires, our longings, our wishes for ourselves and for others. We'll explore how the glory of God shapes our dreams. So would you pray with me uh, as we examine God's word? Lord, uh, we pray that you would be active in our hearts today, that your Holy Spirit, which dwells in us, Holy Spirit, uh, enliven our dreams. Help us to, to hear your word truly and to apply it to our hearts. Speak into us, divide between um, soul and spirit. Show us and convict us of our sins. Bring us to Jesus. Show us his glory and his love for us and transform us into his image. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, right, New Year's, often people look out into the future and they make plans, right? They have dreams. They have things that they want to see happen in the year or in the month or in the uh, decade. And so I'll, I'll ask, what is something that you dream about for yourself? What's something that you dream about? What do you want? If you could, uh, it could be the meeting of a physical or emotional need. It could be the lifting of a burden. It could be a fulfillment of a desire or dream for your future. It could be the remediation or the fixing of a mistake that you made. It could be the healing of a deep or persistent wound to your body or your soul. It might be anything. It just has to be something that, that you want. Now imagine that you could certainly receive your desire. Right? It was going to happen. If you wanted that toy, it was happening. Right? You were going to get it. If you wanted that friendship, it was going to happen. If you, whatever it is that you desire, it's yours. It might take some time, but you know that you'd get it. Whatever it is that you desire for yourself, and imagine that has happened. Like what, It's happened. What do you imagine that this would do for you or change about your life? If you had the thing that you desire, what would it change for you? What would it make happen? Now, this is likely the why behind your desire, the thing that you really want, right? You really want uh, that thing, the, 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 the product of what your desire will give you. And so, so think about that. What is something you desire for yourself? What do you imagine this would do for you and change about your life? Our text today meets us at this incredible nexus of our human desire, what we want, the glory of God, who God is, and the real needs, is, our real needs as humans in relationship with God. So as we explore this interaction between Moses and Yahweh, let's aim to understand the importance of God's presence in our lives and, and life corporately uh, and the beauty of his glory, his name among us. Now, uh, I'm going to tell a story because I know we have a, a lot of kids in here and hopefully it's easier for them to hear. So I'm going to tell the story of Exodus, because our, our text starts in Exodus 33 through 34. That's 33 chapters into the book of Exodus. That's a lot of story. And so uh, the book of Exodus is God's great work of delivering his people from the bondage of Egypt and taking them to a land of material abundance, this land flowing with milk and honey. And it's a land that mirrors their spiritual abundance that God dwells among them. It's a real-life picture of a spiritual reality of the, the people of God. God is with them, and so their land is abundant. And because we're jumping into the story, I'm going to tell it. All right, so our book opens 
with the descendants of Israel, uh, fulfilling the, the commission to Adam and the commission to Noah to be fruitful and multiply. There are a lot of Hebrews in the land of Egypt. Uh, Exodus 1.7, if you want to flip there, says this, Exodus 1.7, but the people of God, or people of Israel, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So, so far, so good, right? The Hebrews are growing, they're powerful, uh, they're increasing in number. But the Hebrews, unfortunately, weren't the only people who lived in Egypt. Have you, have you guys ever been in a place where uh, there's competition for resources? It could be in your house, could be, uh, you know, there's only one Switch or only one Xbox, right? There's only one toy, uh, and it's a problem that there's more people than you have uh, pieces of equipment, and so uh, there was an Egyptian ruler in Egypt where the Hebrews lived, and he was a schemer. He was afraid that the people would rise up. If there was a war, they would side with uh, Egypt's enemy. And so Pharaoh, the schemer, enslaved them. He enslaved the Hebrews, and he brought them. Uh, he sought to absorb them into the people of Egypt. And the way that he did that is he sought to kill all of the men. That's what he did. He sought to kill all of the Hebrew boys as they were born. His first uh, aim to do that was to tell the midwives that if it was a boy, just kill it. Uh, but the midwives, they proved faithful to Yahweh, and they didn't kill any of the boys, and all the boys were born. And so Pharaoh changed his strategy, and, and instead he said, okay, we're going to drown all the boys in the Nile. That, that was his goal. And so this is problematic for many reasons, not the least of which is that the promised male offspring of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, that, that, that male offspring will destroy the works of the devil, and he will bless the whole world, and it'll come from that boy born through Eve, uh, through Adam, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's not going to happen. There won't be a, a son to rise up to crush the head of the serpent if all the male children are destroyed in the judgment waters of the Nile. So Moses, the writer of, of Exodus, wants you to understand that the people of God are in trouble in Egypt. God's plan is in trouble in Egypt. There's a battle that's about to rage between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's about to be a war. Exodus then turns to a man from the house of Levi who is married to a woman from the house of Levi, and they have a, a child, a son, and they build for him a little, right, a little mini one-person ark to preserve him from the waters of the Nile. They fashion, the fashioning of this ark, it's, it's reminiscent of the ark that brought Noah and his family safely through the waters of judgment in the flood. Uh, th this, this ark that they build, they place their three-month-old baby boy inside. And, and that placing him inside the ark is their prayer. It's their small act of faith that God can deliver their son if he wants to. And so... They, they put him in the water, it says, um, and they send him down the river. As a three-month-old baby floats down the Nile, the daughter of Pharaoh, right, the most powerful man in the land, just happens to see the ark, the basket, in the reeds. And, and she sit, says, uh, sends a woman out to go grab the baby, and then she saves the child, and then she hires the baby's mother to nurse the child, and then she adopts the baby as her own and names the baby Moses. Moses. Now, with this introduction to Moses done, Moses, who's the author of 
of um, Exodus. Moses, he, he's now an adopted member of Pharaoh's family, and yet he's a Hebrew born of the tribe of Levi. He is, uh, uh, he is kind of like a, an agent on the side of goodness, right? Embedded in the kingdom of evil. We see Moses then seeking to alleviate the oppression of the people of promise by acting as a prince and judge over them. Uh, there's a, uh, an Egyptian who is a, he's beating a Hebrew, and Moses looks this way and that, and then he murders, he kills the Egyptian who is beating one of his people. And so here in the story, that's Exodus 2, 11 through 15, here in the story, it would seem that a savior has arisen to bring relief to the people. A good guy has stood up, and he's going to fight for what's right. He's going to do the good thing. The desire of the people freedom is matched by the desire of the champion who seeks to set them free. And one has arisen on the side of the seed of the woman to contend with the serpent for the freedom of Israel. He's going to fight on their behalf. But as soon as Pharaoh finds out, he forces Moses to flee by seeking to kill him. And like most merely human champions, Moses immediately, terribly, completely fails. He fails. The dreams of Moses and of the people and the battle with the serpent appear to be lost. Moses leaves Egypt, and as he's leaving, he comes upon the seven daughters of Ruel, also uh, called Jethro, as they water their flock at a well. The shepherds of the land arrive, and they drive the women away. But Moses, he, he clearly has this well-defined sense of justice. He knows what's right. He stands up, and he saves them, and he waters their flock. Moses then ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters, Zipporah, and they have a family together. And Exodus chapter 2 ends with this narrator's note. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God New. Right, the people of God are in deep need and have a strong desire for salvation. Moses has failed to save Israel, but the hearing, remembering, seeing, and knowing God would step in and do the saving. The battle between the seeds is back on. You see, the people of God had this desire to be free from Egyptian slavery. They dreamed, they groaned, they cried out, and God heard and God remembered, and God knew, and then God went to work. First, by calling the failed liberator of Israel while he kept his father's-in-law flock at this wildernessy mountain um, called Horeb. In Exodus 3, we have Moses meeting the angel of the Lord in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. That's Exodus 3.2. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The liberator of Israel is afraid to look at God. And this is what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus uh, 3, 7. So if you, if you want to turn, flip there real quick. Exodus 3, 7 through 12. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And then verse 8. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, 
to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Now I want to highlight three things uh, from the call of Moses. The first is that clearly God sets himself up as the Savior. You see that in, in verse 8 there, right? I, I have come down in verse 8. The second is that as a Savior, he will accomplish two great and mighty things for, for Israel, for the Hebrews. The first is that he will deliver them from their oppressor, the Egyptians. Where Moses failed, God will, uh, will conquer. He will achieve. And then the second thing is that he'll bring them into a good and plentiful land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And then, and then in verse 12, you get this little extra bonus. I, I don't know if this was on the, the mind of the Israelites as they were groaning under their uh, uh, oppression of the Egyptians, but God then, in verse 12, promises to be with Moses and with Israel. He said, in verse 12, but I will be with you. God makes three promises to Israel. One, he will deliver them from oppression. Two, he will bring them into a land of plenty. And three, he will dwell with them. Yahweh speaks to the longings and desires and dreams of the people of Israel and promises to satisfy them. He promises freedom, a land, and his presence. God then goes to work. And uh, between Exodus 5 and Exodus 18, we see Yahweh defeat the deities of Egypt with ten plagues. The Hebrews plunder the Egyptians without lifting a finger in battle. The army of Egypt is defeated and drowned in the waters of judgment at the Red Sea. And the people of God are brought by way of the wilderness again to Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, to worship Yahweh as was just foretold in, in Exodus 3. Right? You shall serve God on this mountain. That's the sign that, that Israel will get back to Horeb, to Sinai. So, so promise one uh, from Exodus 3.18 has been fulfilled um, up to this point in, in the book of Exodus. Yahweh has successfully delivered his people from oppression. Everything is looking fairly positive for Israel. Everything's looking up. Sure, they have some challenges on the Exodus road. Uh, they, they didn't have a lot of water, so they got a little upset. They didn't have any food, so they got a little upset. Uh, they had to fight a foreign army, which got them a little upset. And they had disputes among the people. But the Lord has shown himself as provider, sustainer, and savior. Now, at, at Sinai, the mountain of God, the covenant is given to Israel and the instructions for the consecration of the temple which is God's tent of dwelling among Israel, they're given as well. And the people are being prepared to live in the realities of the promise two and three, right? Land and presence, land and presence. Moses, he's up on the mountain receiving all these instructions from God about the law and the tabernacle, and chaos is breaking out in the camp. At the beginning of, at the begging, sorry, of, of Israel, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and he's his co-messenger, uh, and he's the priest of the people, he fashions a golden calf from the spoil of war Yahweh secured from the Egyptians. 
The gold of plunder that they have plundered from the Egyptians has now become the gold of idolatry. And as Israel sees the idol, they declare of the golden calf, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So before the ink was dry on the covenant between God and man, Israel has already violated it. They're already worshiping the work of their own hands by creating an image of God. And up on Sinai, God knows, and he breaks the news to Moses and threatens to consume Israel. We see that in Exodus 32, 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So Moses, he intercedes for the people, and the Lord relented of the, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And Moses walks down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant that were written in the hand of God in his hands, and he hears the uproar at the camp. Have anybody been to a big sporting event, but not at the sporting event, right? You're like in the city around it, and you know something just happened, like a good play, or like a home run or something because the crowd roars, right? That's, that's the type of thing that's going on right now. And he hears it, and Joshua, who's with him, thinks that there's a battle going on. He thinks there's a fight. But Moses says in 32, 18, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but it is the sound of singing that I hear. But even though he knows what is happening because God has told him, it is when he sees the calf and the dancing that rage fills him. It's when he sees it. And in his rage, he breaks the tablets, signifying that Israel has broken covenant with Yahweh, and he breaks them at the foot of the mountain of God. Then, I think this is so cool. I think it's really interesting. Moses then desecrates the idol by grinding it into powder and then scattering it in the water and making the people drink it. So how is that desecrating the idol? Um, So a pastor, uh, Heath Lambert, I was at Crossing Church when I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. He he gave me this insight uh, because he preached it. It's desecration because as the idol passes through their mouth, it goes into their belly, and then it goes through their digestive system. And then it, it mixes with the waste that needs to be evacuated from their bowels. And then in, in the camp, they had to do this outside the camp. In the, in the, in the, it was in the rubbish pile that they would go do this. And so he desecrates the, uh, the idol that they worshipped by sending it out and mixing it with human waste. And it's signifying the value and worth of all the idols of the world. Right? They are waste. They are nothing. Aaron is then taken to task for his role in the evil, um, and Moses gathers together the Levites to cleanse the camp, and they go around slaying 3,000 men who are engaged in the debauchery of, of idol worship. Moses then addresses the people, confronting them concerning their sins and committing to intercede for them before the Lord. And he intercedes for them before the Lord, and the Lord sends a plague on the people because they broke the covenant of Yahweh. And now uh, we get to our text. We've done all of of Exodus uh, so far. And remember the three promises, right? The three promises. The first is freedom, and that's been achieved by the hand of God, right? He he set the people free with a mighty arm. But the second is a land. And God is already angry with Israel, and, and, and his anger is burning against them. And so that appears to be in jeopardy. 
Is Israel going to get the land? The third is his presence. That's the third promise. But because of the sin of the people, the very presence of the Lord that was salvation and protection and provision before has become calamity and destruction and ruin and woe. So what is going to happen? This tension, this drama of what's going to happen is is where our dreams sort of like intersect with this. Will the dreams and desires of Moses and the people falter and fail? Will they be delivered from Egypt only to die in the wilderness outside the land of promise? And our text this morning begins in 33.1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So huge sigh of relief. Huge sigh. Promise two is still a go. Good news for the people of Israel. They're going to have a land, and it's going to be abundant and beautiful. He's using very similar language to Moses' commission in Exodus 3, and God reaffirms that the land of promise is theirs, and he will deliver it over to them. But then God continues, But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So promise 3, right? Is it that big of a deal that promise 3 is a no-go now? Uh, it, was, it was already an extra bonus promise, but it's a no-go. It, it looks like God will still give Israel everything they longed for, everything that they groaned for, everything they cried out for while they're in the bondage in Egypt. He delivered them from Egypt, and he will bring them into the land of promise uh, that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will give everything that he previously promised to Moses. He just simply won't go with them. They can have their dreams, but they won't have the presence. They can experience the goodness of deliverance from oppression and the living in a land of abundance, but God won't dwell with them. How would you respond if God gave you what you wanted, but withheld from you his presence from going with you? What if God blessed you by meeting the need that you have or lifting that burden from your shoulders or fulfilling that dream you have for your future, or fixed the mistake you made, or healed your deep wound. But what if he wasn't with you? What if God gave you the happy marriage, or, or made you a great parent, or gave you, an, uh, gave you uh, kids with abundant life, or gave you a successful career, or provided you a healthy, fulfilling friendship, or repaired your broken relationships, or filled up your bank account, or enhanced your investment portfolio, or cured your sickness, or broke your destructive secret sin? What if he did all those for you, but he wasn't with you? And church, right? What if God gave us all the things we dream about together as a church, but he wasn't with us? What if we did see the lost around us gathered and saved and brought into his kingdom, but God wasn't there with us? What if we did have flourishing relationships with each other? We're out of love for each other. We're at, we build each other up into this beautiful temple that shone out for all the world to see and, and want. But God didn't dwell among us. 
What if we did believe all the right things and understood perfectly the doctrine contained in the scriptures and taught it to each other flawlessly, but God did not dwell in our hearts? What if God gave us everything we ever wanted, personally and corporately, but he wasn't with us? Moses tells us how we should feel if we were to find out God would give us everything we ever dreamed of but wouldn't go with us. Just look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. It is disaster for us, pure, unadulterated disaster for you and me in this church to have all the earthly success, all the earthly wealth and power, prestige, happiness, and health, and for the presence of God to depart from us. So what do we do with this knowledge? What do we do with knowing that that God's presence is the main thing? How does it shape our own yearnings, our own dreams, our own longings and desires? There's two ideas that I think the text teaches us, Exodus 33 through 34. We're going to do one of them today and then one of them next week. Um, But two ideas. The first that we'll explore is this. We we should seek God like Moses does. Seek God like Moses does. In Exodus 37, or 33, 7 through 11, we seem to get a little strange aside. We have this interaction between Moses um, and God where God speaks to him. And then in verse 7, we get this strange aside about Moses pitching a tent. Why is this here? Verse 7 says, Now Moses used to make, take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whether Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So in our text, it's there, it exists there because it is showing us both the habit of Moses and the context in which the verses that follow take place, namely Exodus 33, 12 through 34, 3. It is the habit of Moses that I want to commend to us this morning, and it is this. It's the regular seeking, meeting, and speaking with God as one might speak to a friend. So this is the first way we we seek God like Moses. We regularly meet with God. And, And this is what I mean by meet with God. Do you regularly set aside time to talk with God in prayer as you would talk to a friend? Do you talk to God in prayer as you would talk to a friend? As you prepare dinner or commute to work or go for a walk or clean your home or meditate in a quiet place or in the few minutes between meetings or as you play in the yard or however you do it, do you spend time regularly laying out your heart to God? asking him to speak into your life and situation, communicating to him your love and receiving from him his own love for you. I would encourage us all to take some time this week 
and set apart time, considered dedicated time to meeting with God. Because consider Jesus for a second in the Gospel of Luke. Consider Jesus. Did Jesus ever need to pray as a man? The answer is yes, he did. He talked to God like a friend. We have it in Luke 5, 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We have it in Luke 6, 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. We have it in Luke 9, 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Why do the, who do the crowd say that I am? We have it in Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. We have it in Luke 11.1. 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. We have it in Luke 22.41. And he withdrew from them a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. So we should be like Jesus. We should be like Moses and make a regular habit of prayer, of pouring out our heart to God and seeking his face. Commit this week. And then keep it going in 2023, right? You will be richer for the commitment. You'll be richer for the practice. You'll be richer for knowing God. Our text continues uh, in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, right? This is the context. He's in the tent of meeting, talking to God face to face like a friend. Moses said to the Lord, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order, that I, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So these, these uh, what, three verses, two verses, give us our, our last three things to seek God like Moses, and they are this. We, we need to see the ways of God. We need to know the person of God, and we need to please God as his servant. So see the ways of God. Moses, as he's speaking with God as a friend, asks Yahweh to show me now your ways. Show me now your ways. This is so prevalent uh, that psalmists pick it up. We see it in Psalm 27, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. We have Psalm uh, 143, 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for I trust in you. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. The idea conveyed by Moses in Exodus 33 and the psalmist in 27, 86, and 143 is that God would reveal to them the righteous actions they should take in the world. How do they live in the world? One of the ways we keep the presence and glory of God central in our lives is by constantly asking God to reveal to us his way, to reveal to us his holy, pure, and righteous law. Now, we sit in a very different point in the revelation of God than Moses. We have the revelation of the beloved son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We have the Old Testament law, which points uh, us to Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We have a lot of objective material we can study in the scriptures to understand the way of God. A lot of objective material. 
But there are certainly still specific questions about our lives that we need God to aid us in and obeying his will in our particular situation, in our particular set of circumstances. And you, you might have one now. You may not know what you should do. You may not know how you should respond. Where you know the way of God in general, you know you shouldn't lie in the situation, but you don't necessarily know how to approach the subject with someone, right? Like these are all things that happen and, and you need God's wisdom to walk you through a particular situation. You need to know from God how you should act. So you should go to God, first in his word, to understand his nature and his will, and also in prayer as with a friend to hear how it plays out in your situation. So this is true personally and, and it's true corporately. There are ways which we need his wisdom and instruction for us all to labor with God in the mission of the church. We all know that we should go make disciples but we don't necessarily know what's going to be best for us here in this context, where we should go, who we should partner with, all those sorts of things. We need God's wisdom and and insight and understanding to obey. We need to go to him in prayer. We need to seek his face and his wisdom. We need to know his ways. The the next bit here is we need to know the person of God. And because as, as we, um, as we follow, know his ways, we will know the person of God. We, we see that in, in Exodus 33, 11. So right, if I have found favor in your sight, show, please show me your ways that I may know you. Notice the logic of Moses, his, his request. He says, show me your ways so I can know you. The ways of God are related to the person of God. Know his ways and you will know his person. Our study of scripture, our prayers, our obedience to God's command is all in the service of our knowledge of God. Jesus taught us this in in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So do you know Jesus? Do you know his Father? Do you know the Spirit whom the Father and the Son have sent? You can meet him. You can meet Yahweh. You can meet Jesus, his Father, and the Spirit in the Scriptures. You can receive him today as he offers himself to you. And finally, the aim of seeing the ways of God and knowing God is to obey God, to please him as his servant. Again, Exodus thirty-three, thirteen. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, if I'm a good servant, please show me now your ways so that I may know you in order that I may find favor in your sight as a good servant. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So now I'm supplying some of the hidden logic in Moses' statement here. Uh, Show me your way so that I can know you. So this is the part I'm supplying. I can obey you and love you as a result. I can find favor in your sight. Out of gratitude and in agreement with the will of God, the people of God seek to follow the way of God in the knowledge of God, so that they can please their God. Another way of saying this is this, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or, or again in Romans 12.1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus taught us how to be faithful servants to our king. In Luke 17, 7 through 20, he taught us this. He says, Will one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he uh, not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If you want to be a faithful servant of Jesus, be pleased to do as you are commanded. Be pleased to do what he tells you to do. Seek to be faithful to God. Obey God. Obey his commands. And so I've commended to you that this this way of Moses that Jesus also commends to us, that, that Moses followed after the pattern of Jesus. And so how does God respond to Moses? How does he respond to a servant who meets with him regularly, who sees the ways of God, who knows the person of God, and who is, uh, seeks to please God as his servant? You just have to look at, at Exodus thirty-three fourteen to see how God responds. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Promise three is back on as well, right? Uh, It has happened. I will go with you. And so ultimately, these ways of life are a fundamental protection to guard our hearts and our lives and our ways from the disaster of walking through life without the presence of God. Meeting with God, seeing the ways of God, knowing the person of God, and obeying the commands of God helps defend us from putting the mission and what we do to accomplish the mission ahead of the person we love. Next week, we'll be in in the same text, Exodus 33-34, but have time to explore how God reveals his glory to Moses and what that means for us. We'll examine how the glory of God revealed to Moses is revealed even more fully in the person and work of Jesus. And now, right, as you dream for your life, and as we dream together over the coming weeks for our church, it's my prayer that these practices will guard us from living life without the presence of God, that these practices prevent us from seeking right things, good things, even beautiful things, ahead of our pursuit of God and his glory among us. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we, are, we are so grateful uh, that you have given us your word, that everything we need uh, for faith and for godliness is, is present here in your scriptures. And so, Lord, we, we pray that uh, we, would, we would know you more. We pray that you would show us your ways, that we may know you, so that we can go and find favor in your sight. Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, erect in our lives these tents of meetings. They, they can be anywhere because you dwell with us. And Lord, let us come to you uh, as your people and to lay out our hearts before you, to converse with you, to speak with you as we speak with our friends. 
Lord, let us come to you constantly. Let us cast all of our cares upon you. Let us pray without ceasing. Open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Help us to know your nature and your character. Help us to understand who you are and what you command so that we may honor you and love you and be with you for all of our days and for all of eternity. Lord, dwell among us. Make your glory shine in our hearts that we may be lights to the world around us. We pray all this in in Jesus' name. Amen.